My name is Mark Pamuti Joseph. I am a poet. I'm a dad. I'm an educator. I am Camila Forbes. I am a storyteller, a director, a producer, a wife, a mother, a daughter, and the executive producer of the Apollo Theater. My name is Paolo Pristini. I'm a composer. I'm a mother, a wife, and a collaborator. For the Kennedy Center. For National Sawdust. For the Apollo Theater. This, this is, is Active Hope. Hello, friends. It's so good to see you. So good to so see you. So happy to be together. Always. What's up? <laughs> Always. Hey, hey. Where does this find us all? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. I hear airplanes in my ear flying overhead. Mm. It's metaphoric, but it's also <laughs> real. I um, This past weekend, I received an honorary doctorate from the California College of Arts. Uh-oh. So, so we got to call you doctor yeah. now. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. Uh, please Congrats. don't. Please don't. But, but one of the cool things about... Um, the the ceremony of it all was I um, had the great privilege of giving the commencement address to the graduates. Mm-hmm. And this is the California College of Arts. It's a bunch of young artists. Mm-hmm. And it is not a very hopeful time. Mm-mm. So how to speak to young creatives as they enter the world. Oof. And one of the things that I talked about was a sense of not a national debt to be measured in dollars, but an inspiration debt to be measured in the capacity to catalyze others into action. Mm -hmm. And that's the place where I've been living lately, Mm -hmm. is thinking about inspiration as a redemptive currency and the way that artists are rich in that specific currency, mm, the currency that. of inspiration. I love that. I just got back from um, San Diego, and I find myself like not completely ready for reentry into the pace mm. that I was going at pre-pandemic. And mm. now I find mm-hmm. myself really needing to kind of step back and ask questions about what I want and my practice and where is my energy best spent. And I think part of that comes from being in the middle of our lives, which is really, you know, it's a, it's a profound moment to be in, um, but also where this finds ourselves in this moment in time. And when I was in San Diego, I was putting up a piece that had been canceled um, from be- right March 2020 with 29 kids who are essentially wow. leading an older person on the journey to death. And it was mm. fascinating to see these kids, you know, who are like from age 12 to 18, approach that subject matter after a pandemic. And these are kids from Brooklyn who are phenomenal and extremely talented, but are, but are you know, they are professionals. They're just young professionals. But yeah. to be on the road, to have, you know, three members of the cast come down with COVID, to see how they, you know, how they were dealing with all the changes that it takes to put art up, to, you know, today, made me really think about just what can the three of us kind of come together as in terms of our own sense of practice, what we're learning, how to hold this space for artists who are coming up into this world in a time that is really difficult and where there is not enough hope. And those those kids gave me so much hope. Their resilience was phenomenal. 
but it also made me realize how hard it is, you know, and not to take that lightly and not to take lightly what it does to the psyche, what it does to the spirit, what it does to our practice. that I just wanted to um, share with you both. Mm-hmm. I've been doing these signals for this incredible Nordic culture group and the signals revolve around the concept of artistic freedom. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of read, read as a just opening of the conversation to where this finds us, the kind of concepts of artistic freedom that UNESCO points out. The right to create without censorship or intimidation, the right to have artistic works supported, distributed, and remunerated, the right to freedom of movement, to freedom of association, to the protection of social and economic rights, and to the right to participate in cultural life. Mm-hmm. And it just made me think about, you know, artistic freedom in this time and what we can do to protect it and to share where this finds us in terms of our practice and our sense of home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is required to be free? Mm. Movement association, Mm. participation, Mm. because Mm. when we distilled these rights, we're also organizing the requisite components. Right. Mm -hmm. I I cannot be free unless I can participate. Right. I, I cannot be free unless I can move. Right. There's, you know, a, a subtext, I think, of our ongoing conversation because we're having this dialogue in the United States is the repression of, eradication of, erosion of our rights and the the kind of shepherding into a kind of stasis of pleasure mm-hmm. as opposed to a landscape of freedom. Mm-hmm. Pleasure is so seductive. Mm. You, you know, seduction that's required to elicit listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a, a broader kind of media induced seduction into a comfortable numb or a comfortable middle. Mm. And 
what's required of the artist is to disrupt that comfort, to be as seductive and to welcome folks rather than the pleasurable middle into the uncomfortable edge. Hmm. Um, and so that's another thing that I would inject into hmm. this kind of um, paradigm of artistic freedom. Hmm. Because these are the things that are required for an artist to be free. But what then is required of a society right. to engage the artist sure. in that cultural edge? It's like there are three or four amendments that, <laughs> that I might want to add because yeah. another thing that the artist needs to be free, I think, is reciprocity. Oh, Absolutely. my gosh. Absolutely. And who Absolutely. and reciprocity from who, you know, and who are right. those people in the positions to reciprocate? And what rights mm -hmm. do they have? Who mm -hmm. are they? Who chooses them? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it's an honest question. I, I think that the systems upon which we've been building are so flawed that I'm not sure that they deserve to be around anymore. Well, let me ask you this question about how do we all practice artistic freedom um, in our roles as leaders, in our mm -hmm. roles as producers, mm -hmm. in our roles as facilitators, but also mm -hmm. in our roles of, as artists? Gosh, that's such a, it's such a great question. I've been thinking about it a lot because um, my life is so full of negotiations right now. And yet I really want to stay true to who I am because I think when the world tells you that you can't be all these things, you have to find that place in you that tells you, no, you can. And I have to be this because it may help. First of all, it's my truth. So there's that. But maybe it'll mm -hmm. be helpful for others to see that you can walk these complex paths. And so I've been thinking about mm -hmm. it in terms of like my own practices about subversion. Like I rarely work within mm -hmm. systems because I can't negotiate the things that I feel and that I truly want to explore. Mm -hmm. When it comes to this institution, it has been a study in negotiation and collaboration. Mm. And what does it mean mm -hmm. to bring together people who enter things for different reasons, but need to come out of it with a common goal in ways that hurt people as less as possible when you're negotiating socioeconomic truths that are so different. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And then it's me as a leader and an artist and how so many people see that I can't be those things. And so I say to myself, yes, I can. And I'm a speedboat. And it's okay to be a speedboat because speedboats are necessary in order to like go out there. And sometimes mm -hmm. that allows me to be a satellite that pulls this ahead. It's complicated. And I think especially in composition where I'm coming from, that um, what I represent is not something that people want. And so it's like, how do you find that space when you know that you're supposed to be at the table? <laughs> like, of course I'm supposed to be at the table, you know? Mm -hmm. You said something really interesting, Paula. What you represent is not always what people want. What is mm. it's so much easier me. to just be like, hey, this is who I am. But instead you say, this is who I am, and this is who I am, and this is who I am. Mm. And it's going to change. And my needs are going to change, and I'm going to continue to evolve because that's what it means to build new models. That's what it means to be able to thrive today. And sometimes it's going to be successful, and sometimes it's not. Right. So you're not betting on that's a winning right. horse, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh that's right. God. That's right. I, I feel that deeply. Um, I think you both know I am not really down with institutions talking about anti-racism. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And 
not really down with institutions saying they want to be anti-racist mm-hmm. because the the import of that is so much larger mm-hmm. than what most institutions have the current capacity to um, uh, successfully execute. Mm-hmm. But the language itself is a cloak yep. mm-hmm. that kind of creates the perception of the work mm-hmm. without the rigor underneath, mm-hmm. without the labor underneath and without the metrics to, you know, to get there. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to take a long time for any of us to be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you ask about artistic freedoms and, you know, and the practices, that's one of the practices is to create these uh, new phrases as I can to indicate that we are not yet there. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of in this um, space of learning how to be easy mm-hmm. with written and spoken language and also to complicate it. And what I found in this period of, of pandemic is the thing that's actually been hard for me is that I haven't had my body or emotional language to buffer the more analytic Mm. or academic or erudite language Mm -hmm. that where I've always lived as a performer and as I I think as a person who enjoys theory and critical theory is the softness of my body, the choreography of my body and my ability to render multiple bodies in physical space creates the emotional place for more like intellectual language to land. Sure. Right. Sure. But without being in a shared space, without yeah. the cauldron yeah. of shared space yeah. to kind of use so- the sorcery of my physical body yeah. and my ability to manipulate energetic bodies all I have is this like highfalutin stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes uh, so, so much sense. I'm trying sense. to find no, that's a, a really... good place in that. I miss being in the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah, we're missing yeah, the yeah. full expression, you know? The full expression. I mean, that's, um, I used to think of it almost like as a, um, when I was younger, almost this sort of selfish rush. Mm. Um, you, you know, self-indulgent, not selfish, more self-indulgent. But quite frankly, it, it coming back to where we started talking, that's what it means to get free. Yeah. It's that euphoria about what it means to get free. The other day, um, I got to shoot at Nina Simone's house. Yes. I talked about that already. Amazing. Oh, God. Yeah. It was so, I haven't really processed it yet. No. But mm-hmm. we were, I was shooting with a, um, for a project called 1619, and I was shooting with, an artist, Liz Wright, mm-hmm. and she stepped into the home and, you know, Liz had been touring with Nina's music with her um, daughter for like a whole year. And Liz's voice is one of the most mm-hmm. incredible and body, as you all talked mm-hmm. about, sort of that body filled voice when she opens mm-hmm. her mouth. It's just mm-hmm. every cell is activated. Mm-hmm. And as we were rolling, she walked in the room and she literally just she she broke down she was so full of what the particular moment of the physical proximity of standing in this space 
of someone as significant and have having made such historical and social impact as a Nina Simone standing mm-hmm. in her childhood home next to her childhood piano under which her mm-hmm. craft was honed under which these early ideas were formed under which her mother fed her food her father rocked her to sleep like mm. she she sobbed and oh, weeped God. and it was that moment where the idea of physical proximity of release of movement of shared emotional participation um really hit me mm-hmm. you know how art practice music is a catharsis of in the same way as church, you know? So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it, um, yeah, I love that. And, you know, my husband, he's a, he's a great cellist. And part of what I fell in love with was how he plays. And it's like, we communicate mm-hmm. on a whole different level. He's, he's not a word person. He's, he's about music. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, he couldn't play. And he took up this job so that we could balance our finances. And it was like, I just saw him die a little bit every day. Mm. When we finally left that, and I realized how like a huge part of our love is really in sound. It's like the thing that brings us mm. together. And that mm. missing that, I was missing, like I was missing the thing, the way we communicate, which is literally like half of our love. So it was just such a like powerful thing because he just left this job and he, mm. you know, when you, sometimes you close the door in the universe and it opens up and something opened up for him. And, and I just felt like, I felt a little selfish to say that, you know, I didn't want to like come out and say that, but, but it's the truth. That's how I felt. Paula, thank you for your vulnerability and your transparency mm. and that, mm. um, amazing piece of insight into not just your relationship but relationships Mm. that's what our partners do for us i think is they create sanctuary Mm. and i I am a person that um has experienced the opposite of that i know that i'm not i'm not alone where your intimate relationship or your deepest partnership stops being sanctuary And I think for a lot of people outside of their intimate relationships or their deep partnerships, art is the sanctuary where they can show up to be their freest selves, the artist and art as avatar. Totally. And and by that, you mean like, like how people see themselves in it because they feel that freedom. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, you know, you see somebody singing on a dance floor and they are Beyonce. They are Madonna. Yeah, they are friggin' Billy Joel or, or whoever it is. You know, like I look over, you know, I'm at a Jay-Z concert and I look over and, you know, there's this like 15-year-old girl who really is a 40-year-old man. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like she really ran the streets. It's like, yes. but, you know, you go to, you're in fourth grade. You go to private school. You're, yeah. you're a white girl in fourth grade. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I do end up, but she beca- she is free to embody somebody else yeah. or something else yeah. um, inside of the, the music. So, yeah, it's, it, it is like freedom requires sanctuary. 
mm. or safe space That's to it. be your freest self. That's it. Which is why I think it's so prominent in love and in loving relationships and why it's so necessary sociologically. Yeah. yeah. Because where are those sanctuaries where we can disappear into our freest selves? Sure. Into our greatest loving selves. Maria, with miles in your eyes, where is home for you? Stevens. You know, it's 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 interesting because as, you, as you're talking about sanctuary and safe space, the word and 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 you know the word home obviously comes to mind in that world mm-hmm. in that realm, but also the sense that you know sometimes home for certain people is not safe. Yeah. Um, mm. That idea yeah. of home is not safe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But yet and still, in order to successfully get free. You know, I always talk about this a lot with with our staff and our teams. 
we have to be the sense of safe space sanctuary. I think I, I much more prefer that language even even more towards home because in some yeah. people's perception, you know, home is right. a place of conflict. Um, mm. Home is a place of friction. Um, mm. But yet as an institution, as a place of our, 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 our artistic freedom, which is what we what we strive to create, we have it has to be safe. It has to be a landing space. I, it's, I love that. And it, it does make me. But a lot of times it's friction. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it makes me think about Georgina, who's, you know, part of the, the, the two guests that we're about to have. And, you know, mm. she came out with this book during the pandemic called Swan Dive. Mm. And mm. in it, she really outs like everything that happened to her, you know, being the first Asian American soloist in the ballet to everything from serious, uh, you know, harassment, assault, like, and she still had to go to that place after she released that book. And the mm-hmm. courage that I think it's taken her to have to return to that place um, after she, you know, kind of outed everything, I think is is huge. And I can only imagine for her, you know, especially, you know, that sense of home as a dancer is this place where you give yourself, you know, every single night, how, how hard that must have been and how hard it is still for her to show up every day. You know, it's just, it's impossible, yeah. actually. Like, I, I think of that and I think, how how can it not change faster? But that's just not the way history turns. It's, the yeah. The crazy thing about that, Paula, is that that is the plight of marginalized people yeah. in this country, period. Period. Right? Like, America yeah. is the site of trauma. Yeah. And yet here we are. It is the site of trauma for women. It is the site of trauma for... Um, you know, descendants of enslaved people. It is the it, it is the site of the trauma, and yet here we are returning. Well, well shall we listen to this this interview? Because let's it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it is that space. Let's mm. let's hop in. Hey, family, how are you all today? Great, thank you for having us. Oh, I'm so happy to speak with you guys this morning. Thank you again. So I'm wondering maybe if we could just start our conversation today about your vision. How did you come to extend from the New York City Ballet to being the author of an incredible book and the kind of emergent force behind a political movement in the arts? It was moving away from home, and I'm one of six kids, and I am multiracial Filipino-Italian. And being steeped in this ballet society, this ballet culture, and always feeling a little bit other. And then when I succeeded in getting into the company, that's when the differences were truly just so stark. And I realized that there was no one else in the company that looked like me. There were other Asian American men, but no Asian American women. Um, just me as a person, and also why Phil and I get along so well is that we we are go-getters. We see a problem and we want to fix it. So fast forward 10 years, I was already promoted to soloist, which was a huge endeavor. I am the first Asian American woman to ever be promoted out of the corps de ballet in New York City Ballet's 70-year history. 
And in late 2016, the company had decided to create a diversity initiative. And through discussions, I was, I think for the first time in my, like at that point, I'd been in the company for at least 15, 16 years, sit down with my then boss, Peter Martins, and truly tell him my experience. And he was in a space where he could sit down and listen. And we talked about, you know, token casting fears. And that's where this idea of the nutcracker came up. And Mm. there was a discussion about how he was concerned if, if he cast this person of color, would that be seen deemed? And, you know, my, my boss was like, do you know anyone? I was like, I do actually. And so (laughs) the story goes, I left the meeting and I called Phil because I had to run to another rehearsal and said, I she wouldn't be surprised. This. I do. <laughs> I mean, she literally just like hangs up. She's like in between things. It's like this like comet this, this just comes through. Hey, hey, like here's this thing. Got to go by, you know. Um, but sure enough, you know, Peter Martin's <laughs> called. And, and so we um, we met and it was about a half hour meeting. And we talked mm-hmm. about um, the history of how Asians have been represented in a lot of our media so looking at broadway and opera and theater mm. tv film mm. but also political cartoons you know like mm. uh, what was happening in the 40s you know around world war ii and japanese people what was the propaganda around the chinese exclusion act so what were the images in the water that informed how we view people of asian descent who are here mm. in america um, and then also the history of the nutcracker and the ballet itself and what cultures got to collaborate and and contribute to this work of art and you know on one side we're trying to say hey we want people of color to come to the ballet we want you to drop off your kids at our schools we want you to join our board you know become ticket subscribers but then here's this fantasy version of your culture that white men created 300 years ago that that we can't seem to change because that's tradition and sorry if you're offended you know and it doesn't work that way so the the thinking about that dynamic he made some changes to the makeup the choreography and the costuming and and mm. from there you know i left the the meeting and i called gina i said you know i, I think peter martins is going to change the nutcracker and so how can we create a discussion create an outlet for for giving creative solutions for the artistic leadership to make mm-hmm. better choices mm-hmm. and so we we bought yellowface.org for like 11 dollars you know <laughs> and we put up this pledge that said i love mm-hmm. ballet and because mm-hmm. i'm committed to to changing the the field and I'm, I'm committed to no longer doing these flattened caricatured versions of asians on our stages we need to fight for the resources for what we need um and you just look at the landscape and you see all of these ballet companies, yeah, they might not be doing yellow face anymore, but they are still not hiring Asian artists in all capacities. We can have both. We can have that and new voices. That's the the beauty of thinking with a multicultural lenses. You get to keep all of you know European history, Shakespeare, Puccini, Mozart, Balanchine, but you also get new folks, bigger folks, and and we all get to claim it as ours. So that's that's kind of what our focus has been, you know, the, the last year, I guess. This is so great because I I was going to say that, you know, with Bamuti and Camila, this this season we're really uh, focused on on organizing hope. And so I was going to ask you about this kind of organizational arc just for others who are in positions where they want to activate and they want to create change. And, And I'll just say that. I think it was just two weeks ago that Opera Australia did another Torundo with Yellowface. So the the changes like especially, you know, in opera is just like 
just so, so not happening. So I'm, I'm just really grateful for the work that you two do. But if you can take our audience just, you know, now kind of completing that arc, what's the vision for the both of you for the future and, and, and the changes you, you hope to see or are already seeing? I think it's this, this larger question of whose voices are we looking at? Whose perspective are we examining this work from? And sort of this larger question that I think really the turning point for us was the sort of the horrific shooting uh, in Atlanta last mm-hmm. year. And, and um, you know, as Gina and I were both dealing with our own grief and anger and confusion, um, you know, my, my dad, who's an elderly Chinese man, is, has been too afraid to leave the house. He won't even mm. come to my performances because he's afraid of going to that part of the city late at night. You know, so he's mm. still living in fear. And, and suddenly the entire dance world turns to Gina and I and says, OK, so what's the action item? What do we do? And Gina and I are like, where do we, you know, we're just two people. What, what do you mean, what do we do? But then we realize that, that we as an Asian community haven't taken up space. We haven't organized. We haven't meaning, built up a meaningful community. You know, black artists have these, these beautiful hubs like Alvin Ailey, Dance Theater of Harlem. Bella Hispanico is there for, for the Latino community. You know, but we don't necessarily have that space that we've made for ourselves. So it was sort of a wake-up call that we need to step up. So right after the shooting, we hosted um, a couple uh, sort of tea house ceremonies where folks could reflect, share their grief, you know, but also network and plan and organize. You know, I mean, talk about hope, right? Like we turn this horrific tragedy into something that can build community and can be something constructive. And I think that's been Gina and I's approach all along with this work is how do we turn something um, into something else? What else could it be? You know, pushing those creative yeah. boundaries on stage and, and off stage. I think also, um, Bamuti and I were talking in preparation for, uh, to meet with you both about this kind of idea of a sense of place and a sense of home. Right. And I just, you know, I think I think for so many people in the last two years, especially as immigrants, you, you begin to question, like, where do I belong? Do I really belong here? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. has that has that kind of crossed both of your mind in terms of this kind of underlying promise of home that I think many of us feel coming to this country? Is that a, is that a theme in the work that you both are doing? I feel like Phil and I have become sort of artistic scientists because like one, we answer mm-hmm. one question and then another question pops up and we keep diving into that. And I think we're just this idea of home. I think it's more of the idea of who gets to call the the ballet world home. And so one of the most interesting projects we have is this, this data entry point, really going through, you know, how the percentages of Asians from Asia and Asian Americans in each company, the Asian American dancers experience a much different, uh, concept than dancers who were trained in Asia and then didn't experience the same sort of microaggressions that we experience here in the States. And when it comes to finding a place and home, do I feel like I've been accepted by the ballet world? Mm. Honestly, no. I don't feel like still after all of this time, after nearly 20 years of bridging one of the interesting point experiences that I have as an individual is that the more voice I find, the more pushback I seem to get in my own personal career, which is like this, mm-hmm. this, this action, this passion was, it's not initiated for my benefit. I know that the benefit will come for generations, you know, 
future generations of Asian American dancers. And that's what makes me so happy because I think that's what breaking the cycle is. And I think that's why all of us together as artists on this call are so passionate about what we do. I think we all have share that same feeling is like we, we're opening the door and we're dragging as many people through as possible. Right. You know, this conversation about home and belonging, a sense of place has absolutely been disrupted or altered at a minimum by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. There have been opportunities um, just structurally to bring people together in ways that normally wouldn't be possible. And, and maybe that's where we can land in this conversation is on how you make space for a different kind of listening. Because when I think of home and when I think of place, now I sound like Stephanie Mills, but when I think of home and when I think of place, I think about conversation and who's around the table, who is welcome to my table and how we are partners, not only in discourse, what's going out, but in listening, how we are prepared to listen. Um, can you talk a little bit maybe about how you have um, encountered new ways of listening for yourself and how those ways of listening might be imparted to others as we build towards a more equitable understanding um, and a, a multivalent consciousness where we can all feel like we belong. Well, I just want to tag to that, that I think you both have forced people to listen because people have yeah. not wanted to listen. And I think that takes right. an enormous amount of courage. Right. Mm -hmm. I will venture the idea that how I have, I have learned to be a better listener is, is, is hearing not just the negative. I know I can, mm -hmm. you know, as a dancer, I'm, I'm always having feedback and, mm -hmm. and criticism in order to pursue an art form that is never to be mastered. So I need in in these discussions, which are so nuanced, and also navigating the space that I am still an active dancer in a hierarchy where I am not meant to have a voice. And there is no mistaking it anymore that when I walk into a room, I am a leader in the dance world. You know, it, what's interesting, Paola, is you said force, and I have been very cognizant of the fact that, you know, as a woman, if I express dissent, then I am all of a sudden I'm considered aggressive. Right. And so um, I do think right. that there is a bit of fear in the institution when it comes when it comes to me. It's not a democratic system in the ballet world for me. I can't just you know, audition for anything. This one person mm. is still going to decide my day-to-day, -day, my artistic views. So then it brings me back to this idea of white privilege. They're using mm. this, or in this, in this white fragility to mm. not want to look at themselves in a mirror or, or see a different lens, see themselves mm. represented in a different lens. I think structurally it's it's so easy to see this dynamic because ballet came from European monarchy. It's literally the dance of Louis the Fourteenth and kings and queens. So mm. of course there's this power dynamic that we've just inherited where one person, mm -hmm. the king or queen, makes all of the rules and says, mm. says who stands where. Mm. You know, this experience for Gina also, I think the, the fact that there's been two of us is um, has been really helpful because 
you know, Gina is actually, she has so much more skin in the game than I do because she's still being paid by the institutions that mm. she's actively criticizing, right. you know, which takes incredible guts. And, and so there's situations where I can say more than she can, um, but also just because of our own inherent diversity. I'm a gay man. She's a woman. So we, we also can navigate conversations and spaces in slightly different ways. Um, and then in terms of, of listening, the subtitle of my book is Final Bow for Yellow Face, Dancing Between Intention and Impact. And that's really been a big philosophy of why I think we've been successful. So instead of questioning someone's intent, question the impact. So for example, if you were to come to me and say, hey, Phil, you know, there's like a Chinese character in your ballet that's super racist. And I can't believe you put that in there. Like you're super racist. I would say, well, no, I'm not because I love Mexican food. My cousin's black and uh, I lived in Japan for four years. I'm not racist. And that's the end of the conversation, right? Nothing mm. more constructive can happen in that space. Whereas if you question the impact on you of mm -hmm. my work, so you say, hey, Phil, you know, uh, I don't know if this was the point of that scene, but like I kept getting the feeling like the Chinese character was like the butt of the joke a lot. Is that mm. what I'm supposed to get from that scene or was I missing something? And then me as an artist with integrity, I'd go, oh no, because I actually was hoping you were going to appreciate the toe touches because he's jumping really high. <laughs> so if you were seeing uh. that instead of what I wanted you to see, which is the acrobatic jumping, mm. then then I've missed the mark as, a, as an artist. So then in that space, we're then playing a creative game of saying, okay, then what else could it be? Um, and, and, you know, when you're scared and when you're afraid of being called racist and being canceled, you're sort of walking on eggshells. Right. That doesn't allow for creativity. If you're worried about, you know, cultural appropriation, then you can't look at a culture and say, okay, what fits in this dance that would make it appreciation? So, so that I think has been a big part of our our success in communicating. That is profound. Yeah, I, mean, that, <laughs> I think that the results speak so for themselves. Profound. Yeah, and yeah, so it's also thinking about this this art form. Like ballet is a dance is a universal language, and how we we can expand that reach if we if we think about the various global lenses that we need to see on our stage, not just sitting in our audience. At the end of the day, thinking about this, the planet as home is that, mm -hmm. and in this time, in this wild time that we are experiencing, and I'd be remiss not to just to insinuate on it, but humans do have an infinite capacity for love. Mm -hmm. And if I could leave you with anything, it's that thought and how we can use that infinite capacity to continue having these conversations. Indeed, yeah. I love that. I love that. Paula, Georgina, Phil, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for making a difference for all of us. Thank you for having us. Wow, that was such an impactful interview and conversation for so many reasons. You know, I, I and and part of it, part of it is it 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 really sort of pulled on. Um, I think we've been talking about sort of this tension and negotiation, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Of the ethos, right? My 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 yeah. ethos of creating, and I think we all really shared this ethos is creating uh, that art is a form that creates community. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in order to create community, you have to have, I think, Bamu, you said it, participation. Um, Paola, you, you, you know, you talk about the reciprocity of yeah. listening. Here, as I talked about, you know, ballet being an art form never to be mastered. Mm -hmm. An art form from, you know, the created by European monarchy 
um, that literally, you know, creates that this dynamic of mm-hmm. singularity in leadership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so complicated because like, exactly. yeah, I mean, I feel like we could have a whole session on like what people think leadership is and, Absolutely. and what leadership could evolve to. Absolutely. I mean it, it because I think that many times, you know, our, our, our leadership does mod at, at, at times there's a tension mm-hmm. between organizational leadership versus ideal creative cultural leadership. Right. And there's this constant negotiation and tension between the two. But there was something so freeing as they talked about their response to the shootings in Atlanta Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what they had to create. That even though the form in which they call home may not actually be giving them the sense of home that they need, but they found ways to build community within that, i.e., creating the tea house conversations in order to have places to share grief, joy, but also to organize. Do you know that their, their organizing within the framework was an opportunity in their own way, create a shared power structure of equity and balance and give voice. Hmm. I like the idea of how we see each other better. Mm-hmm. And using a political movement within the cultural landscape to clarify how we see. This medium is really about listening. You know, we're accompanying people on their bike rides or on their runs or, mm-hmm. you know, their their commutes or, or whatever. And it really is about how we decipher one another and the the portal to that kind of unpacking is oral. But if all we had, perhaps, in terms of how we engage with one another, is our voices, is is music, and we became less conditioned to first engage each other through the privilege of sight, if sight wasn't the portal to fear, which it so often is, but sight was instead a portal to understanding where the world would be. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that's kind of what they're going for, to be seen better yeah. so that their bodies, you know, the, the bodies of those that they share a culture with, a, an ethnic lineage with, aren't solely coded as exotic, mm-hmm. um, to, to also use some of Phil's language, that that's actually what we're going for here. It's not the depoliticking or politicization, I guess, of the body and of the culture and, you know, the tension between a classical European form and non-European bodies, but in a more humanistic way, how different bodies can actually help us come to a a greater sense of peace if we don't code them as other, if we don't code them as um, foreign, but we encode them within a a broader kind of fabric and rubric of beauty. Mm -hmm. This is not to say that, you know, we take out our ethnic lineages or we take out our cultural lineages as we try to understand one another 
because the genealogies are part of how we want to be seen. Mm -hmm. But how do we see each other better? Yeah. How do we, you know, kind of find a better synthesis? I love that. And I feel like this in some way in my mind relates to, Camila, what we were touching about just for a second about leadership is that I feel like all institutions right now need to take a deep look as to who they're representing and how they're represented and what yeah. it can look like to have a healthier home. And I think it's a scary place for a lot of people who have been in power, but it's a really necessary space to inhabit. And sure. I, I see that happening everywhere. And I see, I see that it's going to be a very complicated time for a while. And my hope is that it doesn't go back, but that it goes forward and that new notions of leadership are explored. Sure. And that that kind of singular model of the one person, in no, like not only does it not work, it sets up that person to fail because no one should have that yeah, much power right. or that much responsibility. Yeah. And yet, unfortunately, in, institution-wide, we still lean into that model as being the ideal. Right. The executive director. We director, still do. The, yeah. Top down. Top down. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, corporate. We still see that model as being ideal. What if a model of community driven, collaborative driven, collective driven yeah. mm -hmm. leadership is where our institutions were structured? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would happen? What kind of home would we, you know, as we talk about this home and shared space, what kind of home would we then build versus mm -hmm. top down? We've got yeah. a board of directors who actually mm -hmm. don't actually mm -hmm. work in the field that, right. that, mm -hmm. that, that they're ultimately yeah. charged with administering mm -hmm. or having, you know, mm -hmm. um, jurisdiction over. And what if it was truly collective? as we do in artistic collaborations, as we have to do around active listening, right? What, yeah. if, what if that truly was the format under which we built our institutions in that well, way? I think, I think part of it is like, how do we get there? And so like one of my friends who's a neuroscientist gave me this model that they use in Denmark of like institutions actually having speedboats. And by that, they mean like people who are kind of trying out and testing out models. And I think part of the reason people don't do this is because there's so much at stake. But in a way, it's like if, you know, in your community, if you don't try to kind of catalyze social and cultural change through the arts, who's going to do it? <laughs> like, who else? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is the place where these kind of co-creative models of leadership need to emerge. But I think the only way to do it is to kind of somehow segue it as part of the institution because people are afraid. You know, people are yeah. afraid of change and, and of new models. Yeah. Um, well, I so enjoy the triumvirate of and the triptych of this dialogue. What it feels like we're doing is seeking together. Mm -hmm. And that's a much different kind of enterprise. It's a different kind of leadership. We are leading one another and others mm. in an inquiry journey. Mm. Um, the curiosity level is high. Mm -hmm. And we integrate folks like Phil and, and Georgina into the conversation to help us in the seeking. And I, I would love that from our leaders. Yeah, I feel like there's a curiosity gap 
in this country. Oh my God, I could not agree um, more. And and a fear, yeah. it's like fear-driven decision-making, which is the opposite of where innovation lies. Speaking yeah. of fun things, you know, the last page of National Geographic is always my favorite um, yeah. because it's always like some <laughs> random story and it's yeah. short and I can read it quickly. And something that Gina said, which I think is maybe a beautiful note to end us on, is this kind of the human, human's infinite capacity for love. And then it makes me think about nature. And there's this um, amateur bird medic who wrote this small thing at the end of National Geographic, and I thought I would read it to you all. Awesome. A canary blinded by lightning had to be taught to bathe and where to find its seed and water. Not being able to recognize daylight, the bird would often start to sing at midnight. music we've heard is by Hollis Taylor and John Rose, performed by Claire Edwards. That bird song, that beckoning is gorgeous and so heartfelt. Absolutely. And the defiance of rules, being moved by the impulse as opposed to the physics, Mm. is... um, is a great call for us all. That's right. Thank you for Thank that. Thank friend. Today, you heard excerpts from Aging Magician by Paola Prestini, performed by the Ataka Quartet, the Brooklyn Youth Chorus, and Rindy Eckert, who also wrote the libretto. The opera was conceived by Rindy, Paola, and Julian Crouch. You heard Houses of Zodiac, also by our own Paola Prestini, performed by Jeffrey Ziegler. Maria, by Becca Stevens, performed by Becca herself and The Secret Trio. Owen Springs Reserve 2014, composed by Hollis Taylor and Jose Rose, performed by Claire Edwards. Our producer is Sapia Rosenblatt, and our project manager is Austin Farrow. On behalf of my co-hosts, Paolo Prestini and Camila Forbes, I'm Mark Bamuti-Joseph, and this is Active Hope. Thank you for listening.